Tom O'Neill is a respected writer and editor who's contributed to popular magazines like Us and New York, as well as news weeklies like The Village Voice. In 1999, he accepted an assignment from the now-defunct Premier Magazine to write about the Manson murders and their enduring impact on the Hollywood scene. That assignment soon became an obsession, and a three-month deadline eventually morphed into a 20-year odyssey. Initially, O'Neill didn't have much interest in the Manson saga. He hadn't even read the number one best-selling true crime book, Helter Skelter, at that time. But when he started uncovering inconsistencies and downright lies in Vincent Bugliosi's widely accepted narrative, his investigative instincts took over and plunged him into a rabbit hole he has not yet fully pulled himself out of. The wealth of information he presents in his new book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, is destined to change the official narrative of Helter Skelter that's held the world in its grasp for 50 years. When you work on something like this for 20 years, and you finally have to let it go. Has there been a period of readjustment for you where, where you do not have to spend every day of your life uh, working this anymore? Yeah. And it really began only with the publicity. Um, When we finished the book, we turned it in in March. Then we were, um, well, I was vetting everything with the lawyers for the publishers because they don't want to get sued. And that took another month or longer. Um, and then I created the websites I did for the book and I'm still adding to them. So that was work. But about, you know, about a week or two before the book come out, came out, I really had to stop all my reporting, which I think I'd still be doing right now just to do publicity and PR stuff. You know, I'm doing lots of interviews and promotional stuff and overseas because the book was sold and a few different countries in Europe and the United Kingdom. So for all the interviews I'm doing over here, I'm doing even more over there for whatever reason. I'm not sure what, but when all this is done, I, I hoped originally that it would be the end of it, but I, my collaborator and I are talking about doing a follow-up book and it depends on how the sales are and what the publisher wants, but if they're interested there's so much information we ended up not being able to use. So I don't think I'm going to be done reporting for this with this for a few more years, for better or worse. I was eager to pick up your book, and I was interested in hearing from these figures that uh, never really spoke publicly about these events before, people that are long gone now. Uh, starting right. with Terry Melcher, um, mm-hmm. and who who comes out to have some of the most interesting revelations for me in, in your book. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how the depth of his involvement in this has been mis- misrepresented all of these years. Uh, well, I think it's pretty simple, maybe, because it happened, uh, you know, the trial, the the everything happened before Watergate, so people were much less suspicious of the official stories they were told uh, until really 1974 when people first started questioning the official narratives of events of, you know, the past. So maybe if this had happened after 1974, hopefully the media at least would have scrutinized what they were being told a little more, um, but they didn't. And when I did, you know, it took a lot of hard work and 
many too, too many years, but I kind of broke down a lot of the walls and barriers first with um, people who had never spoken to journalists before, and then with um, law enforcement agencies that had these documents that showed there was a different narrative. You know, I got access to the LAPD files, the district attorney's files, and the sheriff's files, and each of them were unofficial um, access that I got through kind of cultivating relationships with the gatekeepers to them. And had I not been able to do that, probably wouldn't have the kind of book I have because just to make the allegations I made, which don't become allegations once you substantiate them, but um, without the documents, I wouldn't have been able to substantiate them. You know, I was told this information about Terry, for instance, first from Rudy Altabelli, uh, who had owned that, that house where the murders happened and rented it to Sharon and Roman and Terry before that. And I was a little bit skeptical of what he said to me, but I was intrigued. And you know, had I not found documentary proof, first of the DA's files, later the sheriff's files, that Terry had a very different relationship with the family and it even extended beyond the murders, I, you know, I don't know that I would have put it in just based on Rudy's claim. He actually moved back into the Cielo Drive house. Oh, right. After yeah, I keep forgetting that that's new information. Yeah. Um, Which is just I, Well, actually, you know what? Uh, it was new information, but um, Olivia Hussey, the actress who played Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, she was actually traveling with Rudy in Italy when, when they learned of the murders. And she came back with him. He was, she was his client. She was underage. He actually told me a story that's not in the book that he had to adopt her or something in Europe because she wasn't allowed to, to work and go to these different countries and sets without her parents. And for whatever reason, her parents couldn't. So he became a official court guardian, like a foster parent or adopted father. And she moved back with him to the house. And I thought it was exclusive to my book that, you know, it had never been reported before that Terry went there and lived there for a couple of months, even before the Manson family was identified. But she published her memoir just like I think in the winter or spring. I haven't read it, but I saw, you know, excerpts and she talks about being at the house with Rudy when Terry came and lived there too. Bugliosi's narrative uh, had some major flaws. And uh, and it seemed like it all started with this interview that he did with Terry Melcher, where he crossed out a lot of the revelations that. Well, Melcher that was actually an interview with. Yeah, that was actually an interview with Danny DeCarlo, who gave Juliosi the information about seeing Terry at the Spawn Ranch in late August, early September after mm -hmm. the murders, and then seeing him again at the Barker and Myers Ranch, well, at Golar Wash, uh, the entryway kind of to the to the ranches in Death Valley uh, a couple weeks later. And those are the sections that were crossed out uh, by Bugliosi in his interview notes with, with Danny DiCarlo, who he did put on the uh, prosecution. I put it up as a witness, and Carlo basically, the, the, that interview was, I think, 15 or 20 pages long, and the only thing that DiCarlo didn't repeat on the stand from those 20 pages of Vince's notes were the couple of paragraphs about Terry's relationship with the family after the murders. So what does that tell you? If, that tells if you that, that um, that's called subordination of perjury because Bugliosi 
extracted that information from Danny DiCarlo and then um, allowed Terry Melcher to take the stand and tell what Vince knew was a lie. So Melcher perjured himself. Bugliosi suborned it. If Bugliosi didn't believe Danny DiCarlo, he still was obligated to share these interviews with the defense. And not only didn't he share them with the defense, he didn't share them with his own co-prosecutor, Stephen Kay, according to Stephen Kay. So that's, that's a violation of what's called the Brady Law, where you have to show anything, any information that either impeaches a witness you use or is exculpatory to the defendants. And, you know, the defense could have argued that it was exculpatory because it showed that Melcher was lying on the stand, and Melcher really provided the prosecution with the reason that um, the man, our Manson had chosen his house as a target for murders that night. So it raises questions about everything, not only that Terry said on the stand, but that Vince put put on the stand, you know, as evidence, you know, everything his witnesses said and the evidence he put on is all questionable now. Yeah, yeah because it does, it does open up his relationship with, with Manson and the family continuing beyond the murders. Sure. Otherwise, sure. otherwise, why would he make multiple return visits to the ranch afterwards, after the murder? Yeah, and he, and he was asked very specifically and repeatedly when he testified at the trial whether he had ever seen Manson after his May of 1969 visit when he went to the Spawn Ranch to kind of informally audition the family. Uh, and he said repeatedly that that was the last contact he'd ever had with them, which we now know is a lie. Let's talk a little bit about Bugliosi, um, mm-hmm. because what a character this this guy was. Yeah, he's so as complicated we, as Manson. Very much so. Tell me a little bit about your, your run-ins with him in terms of how he tried to intimidate, intimidate you or uh, how he responded to the, your revelations that you uncovered. Mm-hmm. Well, in the beginning, you know, as he would say, we weren't adversaries. I went to his house, spent six hours with him. He was very friendly and generous with his time. But then um, after that first meeting, when his book and prosecution, I started finding holes in it and contradictions. And I'd ask him questions on the phone. I mean, we were talking several times a week for a few months. I could hear him getting nervous and agitated. And at that point, probably about three months in, I started pulling away and not, not calling him anymore. And then I started hearing from Rudy and other people that he was calling them and asking them what direction my story was taking, what I was asking, that kind of thing. And that finally culminated in Terry Melcher calling Rudy and saying to Rudy that Vince had, you know, Vince was supposed to, as he said, take care of all this information and it was never supposed to come out. So, you know, in the fall, I got a, a message from Vince on my machine asking me to call him, that it was important. And when I called him, he said, you know, and he always, this is one of his little games he played. He would never tell you where he got his information. He said, someone told me, Tom, I can't remember who it was. Someone told me that um, you're questioning my tactics in the case. And, you know, I really just want you to promise me you'll afford me the opportunity to excuse me, explain anything that doesn't appear um, correct to a lay person, you know, from a lay person's eyes. And I said, oh, of course, Vince, you know, I will when I'm done all the reporting. And that second conversation didn't happen for another 
six years, I think, seven, well, 2006, seven years. And at that point, it was um, <laughs> no holds barred. I mean, that's when he basically started making his pretty serious threats against the book, against me. And um, from there, it was downhill as far as our relationship went. The prosecution of Manson and his followers rested on a motivating theory known as Helter Skelter, which in Vincent Bugliosi's words, goes something like this. Well, Manson had been telling his family about Helter Skelter ever since that, that album came out. Helter Skelter was going to come down. How was it going to come down? Well, he said the blacks and Watts, he called them spades. He said they were going to come out of Watts, they were going to go up to Beverly Hills and murder a family in Beverly Hills or Bel Air, print words and blood on the wall. And that was going to happen in the summer of uh, 1969. Well, the summer kept wearing on and it wasn't happening. So one day he told little Paul Watkins, he says, Paul, we're going to have to show Blackie how to do it because it's not happening. Blacks aren't doing it. Did he believe in the Helter Skelter theory that he oh, no, I don't. out there? Well, you know, um, he said this, and I've said this in other interviews, it's one of my biggest regrets. I thought I had read, like, everything about the case, every interview he'd ever given, but I had missed one that he'd given in the early 70s to Penthouse. And in that interview, and it's good because it's a Q&A, so it's not the writer embellishing, hopefully, uh, but he, the writer asked Vince if he really believed that Manson believed in Helter Skelter and the bottomless pit in the desert, Armageddon, etc. And Vince answered that no, he didn't think Manson did, but that the girls did and, and Tex did. Now, what the reporter didn't do was ask the obvious follow-up. Well, if Manson ordered the murders and the girls believe it was for to ignite a, a Armageddon, you know, a world-ending race war, and he didn't believe that, then, then why did he actually order the murders? Why did he pick that house? Why did he send them up there? But that reporter didn't ask that. And when I found that interview, it was after 2008, I think it was about the year that Vince wouldn't take my calls anymore and refused to talk to me. So I couldn't ask him that question. And interestingly, in, in 2015, I think, um, I think it was the last interview Manson gave before he died in 2017 was to Rolling Stone. And that reporter did a pretty thorough story on the case and Manson. He even told me after that he had gone down the same rabbit hole I did and was losing his mind and thought he was going to be doing it forever. But Vince told him the same thing, that he didn't believe Manson uh, believed in Helter Skelter. And I said, oh, the reporter's name was Eric. I read it. And I, you know, we had talked and he had, hadn't told me that I saw it. And when the story came out, I, I said, I wish you had asked him, you know, what was the reason then, the follow-up? So that's a question that I wish Vince were alive now to answer. If he thought it wasn't Helter Skelter, then why on earth would Manson order the murders? Yeah, but were the, were the girls themselves convinced that, uh, of, of that being the, the murder? I can only speculate. I can only speculate, but it's one thing I might have to agree with Vince on. Um, and it's, I, I have no definitive proof either way, and I don't like to answer something unless I know it for sure, but it's, you know, I will say it through your podcast. I believe, I don't know for sure, but I do believe that at least the women believed it, but I could be wrong about that too. Which, which brings me also to the, uh, 
the importance of those very early interviews that were conducted with the girls. Yeah. Before before this this helter skelter narrative really started to take shape, wasn't wasn't there a conversation with Atkins that that was not uh, recorded, uh, like an initial conversation? Yeah, I found her first uh, interviews with um, it was actually La Bianca detectives, and it was the first one that has any notes, you know, that there's a record of, and. Um, she never mentioned Helter Skelter. You know, she talked about the murder. She talked about knowing Terry Melcher. She didn't talk about instilling fear, uh, but she described a different murder scene. A lot of, there were a lot of variations that, um, you know, when Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, her cellmates, told the stories that Susan told them to the police, that was third hand. So the police narratives of their stories were third hand, but this was Atkins directly to the police and um, she said Sharon was murdered in the bedroom uh, I can't remember there were like three or four different points of fact that were were changed later mm-hmm. and most importantly at that point it didn't really matter anyway because she was already a compromised witness because as, as you see in the book um, I found out and I documented that her lawyer had been illegally replaced by the prosecution through a complicit judge with a prosecution friendly attorney, Richard Caballero, who had actually been prosecutor until about two or three years before. Uh, and it was a, a back room maneuver. I have the records of the meetings that are written about in the book that were, that was done before Atkins was even charged with Tate, was even identified with the other Manson family members as suspects in Tate La Bianca. So um, yeah. they switched her attorneys illegally. They planted a prosecution attorney into the defense with her on November 26th, and they were identified on December 1st by the LAPD in a press conference. It was announced that they had them, you know, most of them in custody, and they were going to charge them with Tate LaBianca. And the main source of information was Susan Atkins. And the first narrative that we're giving came from her defense attorney, Richard Caballero. Uh, but we can't trust that narrative anymore because now we know that he was a plant, that he was a stooge for, for the prosecutors. So uh, I think the entire case, the entire trial is poisoned by that. That one re- revelation, even before, you know, the Terry Melcher information, I think this, that's really one of the most important discoveries I made um, in my reporting was that the whole trial is called into question because it was fixed. Mm-hmm. From the ver- from be- before they were even identified as suspects, and then there are the Tex Watson tapes. So, mm-hmm. when when were these tapes recorded, and and what importance might they have, and and why haven't they been heard? Yeah, well, um, I think they haven't been heard for exactly the reason that um, they don't. The police want the Atkins narrative, which was then substantiated by Linda Kasabian, who was also compromised. Um, you know, she got full and complete immunity, something that Atkins was never promised. Atkins, Atkins' whole deal was set up to fail. They knew that she'd go back to Charlie. They knew that they just needed her for the grand jury indictments until they got a, until they made a deal with Kasabian's attorneys who would do whatever they told her to do. Um, the tapes, I think, tell the true story of what happened. They were recorded by Watson's attorney on November 30th, 1969, which was the day before... Uh, 
Ed Davis, the chief of police at the LAPD, announced that they had suspects in custody and um, charges were going to be filed. So they're the first actual audio recorded account of the murders, how and why they happened. And I discovered them during an interview with Bill Boyd, the attorney who took made the recordings with Watson. Uh, he, he shouldn't have, but he told me about not only the, the tapes, but that, um, and actually the tapes had been reported on before, but what Boyd told me was that um, there were 20 hours of them and in the, on the tapes, Watson described, as he said, other, other victims of the family that had never been discovered by the police, including a couple bikers and, and whatnot. So I believe that the reason the LAPD, after they got the tapes, and they only discovered them because of me, and they had promised to share them with me once they had them. Uh, of course, they didn't. But I believe once they listened to them, they realized with the DA's office that the contents of the tapes would show the degree that Bolliosi made up his entire case against the family. And that would jeopardize among you know the most well-known convictions of, of the prosecutor's office. And that's, that's why they haven't been released for the five years now that they've had them, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of reporters have made open record act requests for them. And Leslie Van attorney has gone to, I think, 10 different <coughs> courts trying to obtain them. And if anything, these tapes should be made available to the defendants who are still in prison, but they won't release them. Mm. And that's one of the objectives of the book in the end is to get those tapes out there. And we're sure that they still exist. Absolutely not. (laughs) You know, we haven't been told that they've been destroyed, but we also haven't been told. They give contradictory information about where they are. They've told some reporters that the LAPD has them. When reporters request access to them, uh, the, the, the DA's office will say, well, we can't make that decision anyway because they're in the custody of the LAPD. And then I've had other reporters tell me that when they make a request to the LAPD, they say, oh, no, the district attorney's office has them. They both agree that they're in a safe somewhere, but it sure wouldn't surprise me if they hadn't been destroyed. One of the potential benefits of hearing those tapes, as you said, the description of additional victims that have been unclaimed, one of which you discuss in the book at some length. Uh, I think it's Filippo Tenerelli. Is that his name? Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, one of the news sites just did a story on the reporting. And it's a good story about my reporting, but I was hoping it would expand on it. Um, I had shared the names and phone numbers of four or five of the people who have the information about this guy's death. Uh, it'd be kind of complicated to explain it all here for the purposes of your podcast, but that reporter didn't call any of those people. She just basically reported what I'd already reported and got some nice quotes from the relatives of Tenerelli who'd been working hard trying to get his um, certificate changed from suicide to unknown causes. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that some journalist with a mainstream uh, paper like the LA Times or New York Times or someone goes and talks to these people who obstructed my investigation of of the Tenerelli death and also the people who are alive who were actually part of the investigation in 1969. There's still three or four of them that could provide information. So I think that's one of good possibility that that's one of the murders that might be described on these audio tapes. And one of the things I love about your book is that you 
you make it very clear that you are not a conspiracist. That uh, well, that, I try not to be. Yeah. Yeah, and that you don't reach any conclusions that you do not feel like you have substantiated through your investigation. But yeah. you, you do list a, a lot of inconsistencies, both with Bugliosi's prosecution, but also with the uh, investigation itself. And one of the most revealing is, is how many times Manson and his family broke paroles and such that, that any other person would have spent massive amounts of time in jail for. For some reason, they got right. off every single time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, critics of my book will say, oh, it's just police incompetence, parole incompetence. But, you know, I took all the information. I had all the documents that I had gotten, mostly from, again, another archive, the Bureau of Prisons and United States Probation Office, that through a very extensive Freedom of Information Act process, I got about three quarters of Manson's federal parole file. And even though it was still largely redacted, names and that type of thing, I was still able to put together a portrait that was much more um, detailed than anybody had ever reported before about Manson's arrests, basically arrests and release that occurred more frequently than Willie Osi or even Ed Sanders reported in his book. And um, I took all that information to Lewis Watnick, who was a retired DA of uh, Van Nuys, and he looked at everything and just said it was all chicken shit in his words and said to me that uh, sometimes there's incompetence and, and that's why this happens because this is clearly deliberate. He said it's just too consistent. They catch him, release him, catch him. And every time, not only should he have been charged, he should have, almost every time, not only should he have been charged, he also should have been violated, violated by his parole officer. And he said to me, because he was clearly working for someone. What you've got to do is find out who it was and he said he was obviously much more valuable outside than inside meaning outside on the streets and inside jail to whoever he was working mm. for and working you know i said to him what do you mean because you know being an informant can mean basically it just means you're allowed to remain free even if you're committing crimes if you're providing information so he could have been doing something as minimal as just killing cops what Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson were doing with underage girls, although I don't know if that was that interesting to cops at the time, but narcotics was much more seriously uh, treated back then. So he could have been just saying, this is where the narcotic sales are happening, or it could have been any number of things. And I, I again, like you said, I don't like to speculate. All I can do is present a, I think a pretty solid case that he, he, he was getting privileged treatment from, law enforcement, you know, particularly sheriffs and LAPD and also uh, the parole, U.S. parole office. Manson and his gang managed to evade the strong arm of the law not long after the murders of August 8th and 9th as well. In the largest raid in California history up until that time, the police apprehended Manson and dozens of others. They were released soon after, based, according to Vincent Bugliosi, on an improperly dated warrant. Yeah, yeah, that happened a week after the murders. It was it was the largest raid in the history of California up to that point. Um, I think later when the, there was a big shootout with the police and the SLA in the 74 or 75, I think that became the, the largest. Um, but at the time, you know, this was 
two months at least of surveillance of the family. And there are all these reports that uh, I found at the sheriff's department showing that the family was being much more closely monitored up and up into and including the day that uh, the murders happened, the tape murders happened. They knew where Manson was coming from and who he would be with and where he was going. Um, so the raid w- was, I think it was yeah, the morning of August 16th, and the group was released three days later after the 72-hour hold. If you don't charge someone, you have to release them. And Bugliosi wrote in Helter Skelter that they were released, 33 people. I mean, some of them were kids, so they weren't going to be charged anyway. But um, it was like 20-some adults were all released with without charges, including Manson, because he had said that the warrant was misstated. I finally got a copy of the warrant, and I think it's actually available online now. Other people have gotten it since. And it was dated August 13th, but um, a warrant is good in Los Angeles for 10 days uh, before and after. So it was good from, I guess, five days minus the 13th to five days after. Uh, And I also interviewed Bill Gleason, who wrote the warrant and executed it. And he said, of course it was valid. Bugliosi lied in the book. So the question is, why did he lie? And why weren't they charged? And why wasn't Manson violated? Another thing I found out about that raid that has never been before was that Manson had stolen credit cards in his pocket when he was taken into custody. So he's a federal parolee. He's identified on the first page of the warrant as running a crime ring involving automatic weapons, weapons, underage girls, narcotics, stolen cars, and he's on parole. And it's interesting when when you interview some of the investigators that were involved in this case, some of them have been bothered all along by... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot more than I put in the book, too. I mean, the only one really that believed in Helter Skelter as the motive was Stephen Kay, Vince's co-prosecutor. And then, as you see in the book in 2006 or five. When I showed him all the evidence of uh, Vincent and, and Terry's collusion and the perjury about Terry Melter's relationship, <laughs> he said, I don't know what to believe anymore about this case. He said, I thought I knew it. You know, he actually did know it better than Vince because Vince left the case after the Watson trial, um, but Kay prosecuted, I think it was Bruce Davis uh, and Manson for Hinman and or Shorty Shea, I'd have to look it up. But he also did 60 parole hearings for 30 years. Uh, and at a parole hearing, he's required to, you know, lay out the crimes of the person asking for parole. So he went through the narratives again and again and again. And then also the cross-examination of whoever was asking for, for parole, whether it was Manson, Watson, Ben Houghton, for 30 years. So when he looked at these documents showing that Vince had covered up the truth about Melcher's relationship with the Manson family and Manson, he, you know, he was pretty devastated. I think you'll see that in that scene in the book. So most of the cops never believed Helter Skelter. Aaron Stovitz, who was Vince's first co-prosecutor before he was taken off the case by the DA early into the trial, he told me on the record he never believed in the Helter Skelter motive. So I, I believe that Helter Skelter was something it's been said elsewhere that it was like a philosophy, but I don't think it played the big part in the family's day-to-day life that um, Bugliosi presented it to be during the trial. Well, it's it's folklore now. It's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, part of the yeah. You're you're expecting, and you've probably already received your your fair share of 
criticism uh, for some of the revelations contained in the book, but you have audio recordings of, of most of these interviews that you've done over the years, right? Yeah, yeah. And Little Brown, my publisher, has a lot of them. And I think they're going to start, they, they put a couple up on their own website, you know, the Little Brown Publishing website. I think they plan to do a few more that they're animating. So I've held off. I've, I've put a few of my own up on my website to the book, too, on Instagram and Facebook. But I have a bunch more, you know, specifically uh, the Vince interviews, the Melcher interviews, some other stuff. And once we find out what I want to give Little Brown first crack at it, they've got like a, a thousand times as many um I don't know what you call them, followers on their Facebook and Instagram page than I do. And, uh, you know, they, they've supported me the last four years. So I'm going to let them have first crack. But if they don't use it, you know, in the next few months, I'm going to start putting them up on my site too. Yeah, you can go and see a lot of the documents already. I've put them up. I think I've got about 40 posts that I've been putting up for about two months now. The last two weeks, I've been a little lax because I'm traveling a lot and I don't have access to everything. But um, I'm going to try to get another post of documents, scan documents up in the next few days and get back to my schedule of trying to do a post, you know, once or twice a week of, of, of stuff, documents and things that are referred to in the book, but we didn't have enough room to reproduce in the book. Here's something that I was. This is completely off the uh, off the timeline here, but this is something that's always fascinated me: whether or not Manson returned to the house that night. And mm-hmm. I think there's overwhelming evidence that he did. But but where do you fall on that? Bugliosi was vehemently opposed to the notion that Manson had gone back. I can't prove that he did, but you know, Manson, in his own words told his biographer, Newell Emmons, in a book that they published in the 80s called Manson in His Own Words, that he went back and rearranged the scene. Now, he later um, retracted and said that he, he hadn't cooperated with Newell Emmons, that Newell Emmons had made the whole book up, but the problem is Manson promoted the book when it came out. Uh, he did two interviews from prison with, with Newell Emmons sitting next to him uh, about the book, so... You know, Manson couldn't be trusted really with anything he said, but I think there's more evidence that he did go back than evidence that he didn't. Ed Sanders wrote in his book that Paul Fitzgerald told him that um, Manson said that he went back to see what his children had done. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more evidence there... that he did go back than, he, than the, that he didn't go back. I think so too. And, and, and things like, uh, I think when some of the girls looked at the crime scene photos they saw things that they they said we didn't leave it like that like maybe the american yeah oh yeah 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 in helter skelter they describe a a noose tied around jay siebling's head with a handkerchief tugged into the rope around his neck in the police reports too and susan atkins version was she threw not a handkerchief a towel a bloody towel into the room um and she was the last one to leave. So uh, how that ended up getting tied under the noose, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the bodies were moved, the coroner and the blood uh, researchers at the scene were sure that Sharon's body had been moved out to the porch and then moved back to where she was found by the blood smears on her, on her corpse. This uh, kid, Carlos Gill, who was 14 at the time. Oh, I couldn't find him. It's even in the Helter Skelter book that he heard noises 
arguments right. after 3 o'clock right. in the morning. So that's another thing to support Manson's uh, presence there. If you had to encapsulate why, why this story lingers in the public imagination for 50 years and what its significance really is, what, what would you say? Well, it's interesting. That was the first question Tarantino was asked at the press conference after he premiered his film in, in France in, uh, I think it was April or May. They asked him why he thought the public was still so fascinated or interested. And he said it's, clear, it's the mystery of how Manson got control and was able to get these people to kill people on command, strangers. You know, what, I wish that Tarantino had my book before he made his movie. Well, Maybe not before, because he would have maybe used information, but I wish he had it before he did that press conference, because I think I provide some answers. But I think he really articulated it well. He has the book now. I have a mutual friend who uh, gave it to him about two, three weeks ago. I doubt he got a chance to read it. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever hear from him, but uh, I, I think that he articulated it perfectly. You know, it's just seeing these women, an old video of them, skipping in and out of the courtroom to their, tr their murder trial, you know, laughing and giggling and singing and nursery rhymes and holding hands and laughing, you know, about these horrific crimes. And then their other followers who weren't indicted for the murders outside the courthouse mimicking them and mimicking Manson. When they shaved, when Manson shaved his head, the other women defendants did, and then the people outside of the street did, the followers, and then when he carved the X in his forehead, they all did it. It's that kind of, you know, we'd never seen anything like that before. And really since, I mean, except for Jim Jones, and, you know, those people killed themselves. They didn't go out and kill strangers. Um, I think it's a pretty unique case. And, you know, whether or not it ended the 60s, there were a lot of other climactic events that year, Altamont and whatnot, it's still kind of a culturally defining moment, I think. And I think that's why people are so, so intrigued by it. On the final episode of our August 69 series, he was the first victim on the evening of August 8th, and he became the ultimate symbol for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. But 18-year-old Stephen Parent was much more than a victim. Now, after 50 years of silence, his high school sweetheart shares her memories of the Stephen she knew and loved. He's very sweet, very kind to everybody. We dated off and on for years. Her regrets over the last moments they spent together. And I turned around and slapped him and I walked out the door. That's the last time I ever saw him and the trauma that remained years after his passing. You know, August is always a rough month for me. Tune in to the finale episode of August 69. Visit moviegeeksunited.net for more details.